In my mind, what, what works really well in human behavioral change is habits, because when we build habits, it, it reduces the cognitive load of the change. So today we have one of our old friends, Quentin Zondervan, in the studio with us, MIT alum, member of the MIT Alumni for Climate Action, and now Cambridge City Councilor and very, very active on climate change. We are so happy to have someone who went from being an activist to being a policymaker in this room with us. Yeah, I can't think of anybody who I know who better personifies this sort of like continuous learning that one needs to go through. And when I think about the kind of behaviors we need amongst our elected officials and policymakers, I'm really looking forward to talking to Quentin, how he thinks about that. And and one phrase that I learned from Quentin that I'm stealing from him, Quentin, sorry, um, <laughs> is safe to fail. So these are experiments where even if they don't work out, in fact, especially if they don't work out, you learn something. So they're safe to fail. Mm-hmm. And Quentin's certainly a model for learning by doing. In his case, I think it's learning by jumping in yeah, yeah. and getting wet. So this interview was recorded in February, so it's a while ago, but Quentin's ideas are always fresh. Here's Quentin. Welcome, Quentin. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Quentin, first of all, congratulations because you are a freshly minted Cambridge City Councilor. Thank you. What's it been like? It's been great. It's a whole new platform for making change. It's definitely different from being out in the streets, <laughs> but it is a bigger platform and allows me to uh, bring in more people and, and have a, a richer conversation about some of these topics. Yeah. For our listeners who aren't super familiar with Cambridge, Massachusetts, how would you describe it briefly? What's, what's the scene? So we're 100,000 people in six square miles, two of the top universities in the world located in our midst. Uh, we have a super hot innovation economy. So what does that mean? It means that our economy is booming, the rents are rising, lots of buildings are being built, but a lot of people are not able to participate fully in that economic environment. So so that's definitely one of the hot topics is, you know, affordable housing, economic justice, how do we extend this economic boom to more people in our community. And then climate change, sustainability, the environment are always hot topics in Cambridge. So, mm. Do you represent all of Cambridge or just a certain section of Cambridge? Or? I do. We have a very unique form of <laughs> government in Cambridge. And so we have nine city councilors. We're all citywide elected. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Quentin, as we all know, you've been a climate activist for now decades. Yes. Why then become a Cambridge City Councilor? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I think there's at least two aspects to it. Um, one is kind of to consolidate some gains. You know, I've been able to institute some changes. And, in the city? Like, yeah, yeah, in the city from the outside. And so now trying to solidify them more from the inside so that they really have staying power and you know, continue to make deeper changes. And then 
also to take advantage of that platform to make other changes that uh, may be harder to do from the outside or that are harder to do when you don't have people like me on the inside who are more receptive to yeah. it. What's an example of, so when you said you're working from the outside, what right. were you doing specifically? So, you know, when, one of our more famous examples is the net zero uh, action plan that we brought about. It's and, a citizen-driven thing? Yeah, so that was a citizen zoning petition in 2013 that became a task force process that went on for a year and a half. And then out of the task force came the net zero action plan that was adopted by the city council in 2015. And that's a 25-year action plan. So in some sense, it was a great success because we really got our agenda to be the city's official policy, which is fantastic. It's a 25-year action plan. And so it's very easy to imagine that things don't happen or they don't happen as fast as we would like or, you know, they get taken in a different direction. It's just a plan. There's no teeth in it. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't really mandate things that are supposed to happen 25 years from now. So so there's lots of steps. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of steps that have to happen along the way, and we have to shepherd those along. So, so that's an example where I've made the change. Now I have to help consolidate it. Is that one of the reasons to be on the inside? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, there's way more that we need to do, right? And so it's also an opportunity to bring more of that change inside. Mm. As a city councilor, you're probably responsible for many different topics and domains. Where does climate fit in all that? Well, the good thing about climate change is that it touches everything. So Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) it's pretty easy to bring it into any other issue. But there also is some division of labor. So, you know, people expect me to lead on climate change and environmental issues on the council. But, you know, other councilors take the lead on other issues. And so some of it is also just you know, dividing the work a little bit. Oh, sure. Do you find yourself, um, in a sense, teaching some of your fellow counselors uh, about some of the things you know about climate change and vice versa? Absolutely. Uh, what's, what's that like? Uh, it's great, actually. It, it provides a great opportunity to build some coalition and some relationships with folks. And, you know, it's it's a nice give and take where I can come in and say, okay, I am the acknowledged expert on this topic, but I don't know very much about these other things. So, you know, it puts us on, on equal footing, which is great. And then, you know, I can support them on certain issues where, you know, I follow their lead, but I'm also sympathetic to that particular cause and then, you know, expect their support in return when I bring issues forward. Yeah. Cambridge is a, is a fairly progressive place politically. Are there any public. Yes. Are there yes. any forces that are that you would say are not in favor of pushing in a climate change direction? You know, even antagonistic to it in any way. I mean, there, certainly in the community, I, I encounter a rare few individuals who may, you know, not believe that climate change is really a thing. But, but for the most part, people accept it and and agree with it. There, there is a, a different kind of denial, which in in some ways is much more insidious, and and it affects all of us, myself included, which is that. We fully accept climate change. We totally agree that stuff should be done about it, but we don't want to be inconvenienced by any of this. And so any particular change that inconveniences someone is going to garner objection. And, And again, you know, that includes me, right? And so... I still want to drive my car. So it reminds me of, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to 
butcher it. There's a famous episode in St. Augustine's life where he says, you know, God save me from all these sins, but just not yet. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. So, so that's more often the kind of opposition, if you will, that we encounter. And it's a little bit, I mean, in some ways, it's it's harder to, to deal with because y- the argument isn't, on a fundamental level, should we do this or not? It's it's a it becomes almost more subversive, you know. Mm. And it's like, yeah, all these little tiny personal transformations that have to go on, and right, yeah, yeah, and and so it becomes more challenging in some cases to make the argument for why we should do this particular thing and not the other thing, and you know why now and not yet, and you know. So what if you found particularly effective, I mean, for yourself and your own family or constituents in Cambridge to cross that boundary between, yeah, I get it conceptually, but I'm not quite sure I need to do anything personally, even though I support it conceptually. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'm I'm a very strong-willed person, and so when I decide that I'm going to do something, then I do it. But I I still have very specific techniques that I use to convince myself that I should Mm -hmm. stick with it. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I firmly believe in is building habits. And so, for example, a few years ago, I decided that I should reprogram the thermostat because I'm a tropical creature. And so, you know, the winters are particularly challenging for me. And I have a tendency to crank up the thermostat. So Mm. I had programmed the temperatures to be pretty high. And I was determined that we were going to live with lower program temperatures. But I knew that if I did that all at once, then it would challenge my ability to cope with it. And so I actually did it over three years. And each year I lowered the programmed temperature by two degrees Fahrenheit. Six degrees total mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so but slowly over from time, 80 to 74 or? Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> something like that <laughs> yeah is there is there a reverse story about the frog in the in the in the yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it's getting that's colder right. and colder it's like the inverse frog <laughs> slowly freezing the frog well. um but you know just the other day my wife was complaining that that it was cold and i said well you know when you come home then you can increase the temperature because i've programmed it so that it's lower so that when we're not home we're not heating up the house for no reason yeah and you know she was like well i don't really like this and i was like well you know we're trying to use less energy and so we have to do a little bit more work to remember that if we want to be warmer we have to go manually increase the temperature, which or, also reminds us that we're using more energy now. Or put on a sweater. Well, yeah, but you know we already do that. So. <laughs> yeah. I wonder when you take a, a case like this, the, the the story you've just told is is very sort of personal. It's your yeah. family. It's it's within the domains of the house. Yeah. How much do you talk with your friends and neighbors about what's going on with the challenges, the struggles, and to what extent is and this a conversation? Yeah. Right. Yeah. To, to share what you're going through and kind of open a conversation up about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes up quite often. Of course, you know, I'm sort of the neighborhood climate activist, so, you know, people almost walk up to me and <laughs> try to talk to me about it. But again, you know, I, I don't encounter a lot of people, 
in you know my ordinary life who are like oh you know climate change is a hoax but but even when i do i you know i get into it with them in a in a friendly way but it's like you know we we have a real conversation about it and uh you know i I don't know that it necessarily changes people's minds but it's certainly you know i mean uh, during the campaign i i remember vividly meeting one guy who was just totally disagreeing with me and yet we ended up having an hour and a half conversation and at the end he thanked me and he was like you know i really appreciate that we were able to have this conversation because it was a real conversation like we weren't mm-hmm. you know shouting names at each other you know yeah. it's like mm-hmm. we were really exchanging our thoughts yeah. you know can i can i return back to this question of like the personal action and the inertia mm-hmm. which you described so mm-hmm. so well so what what methods can we use you know, can we learn from each other about to to help shift that inertia to take those small steps that are maybe a little inconvenient to make it easier right yeah. well you know again it's in my mind what what works really well in human behavioral change is habits because when we build habits it it reduces the cognitive load of the change. You know, one of the reasons we resist change is that it requires effort, right? It's like mm-hmm. I have to wake up every day and think, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I should lower the temperature. But but if I build a habit, you know, if I'm able to program my thermostat, so now I don't have to think about it, right? And if I come home and I feel cold, then I have to think about it in the other direction. It's like, oh, yeah, I should, you know, warm it up a little bit. So. So really trying to build new habits and then doing that not just in your personal life, but professionally or in our government, right? And, and of course, in our government, the habits are the laws. And so we need to change the laws so that the right types of behaviors are encouraged or you know, become the, the norm. I'm glad you're saying that. And I'm glad that you're pointing out this connection between habits of government and habits of you know, individuals and families and communities. Thanks. So what's an example at the Cambridge City level of a habit that you'd like to see change? Sure. So I have a, I have a perfect example for you. At the last city council meeting, I, I noticed this bizarre juxtaposition where we had two different matters in front of us. One was a request by a neighbor to historically landmark his house and his neighbor's house because he did, he wanted to prevent his neighbor from doing certain upgrades to the house. And his neighbor wants to do efficiency upgrades, by the way. And we have a historical commission, which then has to investigate this whole thing and does an elaborate report on why these homes are actually historically significant and then we as a council have to vote on whether we want these homes to be historically landmarked, which then they incur all kinds of protections against demolition and against uh, making changes to the exterior. The juxtaposition is that we're also discussing the potential destruction of four 50-year-old trees in Inman Square that we want to remove because we want to change the roadway through that intersection. And the protections for that action are exactly zero. The The only reason that this particular case is before the city council is that there is a, 
state law that was used to create the park that contains the trees. And under that state law, we would have to go back to the legislature to uh, move the park, which is what's being proposed, and, and cut down the trees in the process. And so we get this unusual referendum at the city council on whether or not to cut down those four trees. But there's no general protection that comes anywhere close to what we provide for historic buildings when you look at, at trees. And so that's an example where we have built a certain habit which says we really value the historical nature of our buildings and we're going to have all these mechanisms in place to protect them. Mm -hmm. But apparently we do not value the trees in an equal way. Yet. Which sequester carbon. <laughs> which sequester carbon and protect us from the urban heat island effect. So, mm -hmm. so that's... And are just trees. I mean, exactly. Yeah, right. so, so that's a clear <laughs> yeah. example for me where we need to change our habits. We need to pay at least as much attention to when, you know, when we're cutting down trees mm -hmm. as we do mm -hmm. to when we're taking down buildings. Yeah. So I'd imagine you're, uh, you're, you're going to get to live through a fascinating sequence of compromises and priority calls amongst all these competing interests here. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I tend not to think of it as compromise in the, in the sense that, you know, most of the time it is possible to create a broader frame that gives us most of the things that we want. So, so when we look at, you know, we want to move this road because we think we're going to make the intersection safer, I have a hard time believing that we cannot make the intersection safer and retain the trees. Mm. So, you know, oftentimes we present choices as being in sharp contrast to each other, but that's not always really true. And so one of the things that I do is try to unpack what's being proposed and figure out, you know, is there really a conflict here or is there another way so that we can have both? And I'm thinking that there are probably city planning slash design or engineering habits that just says, oh, here's what we do. We go to an intersection. If we need to broaden the road or whatever, we cut down all the trees and we... And we put, plant new ones. And right? It's all good. I mean, yeah. yeah. It need not always be that way. Right. You're exactly right. So, Quinn, how many years do you get to do this? <laughs> well, this is a two-year term, and then, you know, it's up to the voters. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, if it's, uh, f let's say, six years from now and you've been a city councilor and doing what you feel like needs to be done, what's your vision of how things are different in six years from now. Right. So I, I think, you know, similar to how my house is different and we have different habits. Yeah. Uh, we have solar panels and we drive an electric car. Similarly, I envision that the city of Cambridge as a whole will continue to make progress towards having better habits in terms of our environmental protection activities. And we will be deriving more and more of our energy from renewable sources. And we will be thinking about these questions that face us more and more through the lens of climate change, not just in terms of our sources of energy, but also protecting ourselves from the dangers of climate change and even restoring the climate ultimately to, to safer levels. I mean, you know, one of the big questions that 
of course, has been facing us for a long time, but people are finally starting to grapple with is the oceans are rising. And geologically speaking, this happens all the time, right? So no big deal. But of course, in terms of human civilization, this has never happened before. And in particular, we've built lots of our cities on the coast. So naturally, the first part of the conversation is, okay, well, how do we build a wall tall enough around our little city so that we don't drown, right? And so I'm watching that conversation and, and I talk to people occasionally and, you know, both officials and, and laypersons. And I usually ask them, well, okay, how tall is the wall going to be? And where does it end? And how much is it going to cost? And eventually get them to realize that this is folly, right? And that we can't protect ourselves that way and that we really have to protect everyone and in the process protect ourselves and really start thinking about globally, how do we restore the climate? How do we stabilize sea levels rather than in our own little fiefdom, how do we protect so ourselves? So this actually brings us to sort of a key question for us in this third season, right? I mean, the oceanic perspective by its nature is global, but Cambridge is right here and it's local. So how do you see the two kind of interfacing with each other, especially as a politician who is charged with a responsibility towards this particular city? Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, we we face lots of problems like that. And, and usually what we do is we break it down and say, okay, well, what's our reasonable contribution to to make to address the global the global issue? And when it comes to, to sea level rise, we face the same question. And, and in a city like Cambridge, we have both unusually large resources uh, financially, and we have unusual amounts of innovation and brain power. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I think our contribution should be quite significant to the world. And, and it really should be in terms of thinking through the problem, thinking about real viable solutions, and then thinking about how to implement those solutions. And that's ultimately what innovation is. So if we are the innovation capital of the world, then let's start innovating a solution to climate change. Yep. Dig here and then <laughs> tell people what we've learned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So do you, you know, talking about those kinds of innovations, do you find yourself now having more conversations with, say, city or town councilors in other parts of the state or even outside and bring your climate perspective to them? Definitely. And, and a lot of times what I find is that many of them are already thinking about this and they're just facing different challenges in trying to implement it. Maybe with respect to sea level rise or? No, just, just climate change Climate general. generally, okay. Um, they're, you know, often in a more conservative political environment. And, and by that, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, but just relatively more conservative, which means it's more difficult for them compared to me to make certain changes in their jurisdiction. So, so they'll often want to understand, you know, well, how did you do it? 
And sometimes they'll say, well, but, you know, that's a special case because you're in the People's Republic of Cambridge. And I'll point out to them that it's not that simple, right, that we still have a level of relative conservatism here as we do everywhere, particularly fiscal conservatism. And so these kind of questions face all of us, even, you know, it's, it's a matter of degrees, not, not kind. Well, and it comes back to the, what you were talking about before. Uh, we all have resistance to change. Right. We're really not comfortable getting out of our comfort zone, so to speak, you know, right. literally. Right. And so a lot of times it's really about who are the right people to talk to? How do you get more information? And how do you finance it? You know, I, I was just meeting with some folks in, in Watertown over the weekend who are thinking about their new school renovations. And, you know, they look at Cambridge where we're building net zero schools and they're saying, well, how can we do that here? And, you know, so they want to understand what did you do? How did you do it? You know, how much money is it saving you? You know, what, what, was, what was the public conversation like? So these are all helpful inputs for people to think about how to have those conversations in their own environment. But again, it's not, generally speaking, when they're approaching me, it's not about, you know, how do you deal with climate change deniers? It's really, how do you move this conversation forward? So I, I'm going to use your turn of phrase. You know, you have to create habits, yeah. right? And of course, habits are learned. And we're all about learning over here. <laughs> and do you think that there are specific kind of learning modules or learning opportunities for your peers that are worth creating, right? I mean, taking into account the kind of difficulties you're talking about, you know, you're not, you're relatively more conservative or even more so. Is there a way to structure this habit creation in a way that it makes it more sort of concrete and, and palatable? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly not an expert, but but I'm learning how to learn myself. And some of the things that seem to work better than than others include definitely stories, right? People connect with stories. They want to hear the story of how it went in your town, even if it's not going to be exactly the same, that story informs them about what is possible. Definitely information, right? I mean, having clear da data available that people can look at and say, okay, well, you know, they built this school in 2014 and they saved this much energy and this much water and, you know, the payback is 20 years. And, you know, just having those simple uh, facts and figures available to use when when they're having this conversation. And then, you know, success, right? I mean, people love to tell successful stories and to hear successful stories because, again, it allows them to realistically imagine their own success, even when the path looks particularly difficult. I'd like to ask a, a follow-on on the success side of that. I find sometimes that when people are in the midst of trying to create something and they're seeing all the challenges and so forth, there's also a hunger for understanding what things looked like on the way to what you now see in hindsight as success. You know, mm -hmm. what, you know, were there moments as you were, for instance, creating the net zero plan in Cambridge where it was not a done deal mm -hmm. that this was going to go through and a, a community that might be 
just starting on that net zero. There might be a lot that they could learn from, right. you know, the messy process. Right. <laughs> do, you, uh, do, you, do you like to tell those kind of stories too? I do, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and people ask me that. You know, they'll say, well, did you face any opposition? And I'll say, absolutely, you know. And here's a story about the business community calling me up and saying, hey, you know, we're a little concerned about this. Can we talk? And I said, sure, and organized a, a community meeting where we brought together lots of business leaders, property owners in Cambridge who wanted to talk to us about our net zero proposal. And some of them in, in the end became allies because we carried that conversation in a respectful way and, and made sure that we were hearing their concerns. I encountered concerns from the uh, Carpenters Union and, you know, again, heard them out, met with them and, you know, listened to their concerns. They weren't converted to allies, but they did become friends because, again, you know, we were respectful in listening to them and, and making sure that their concerns were heard, even if we couldn't ultimately agree. At so that you're time. saying that you have to actually talk to people? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. The listening part is harder. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> the talking is easy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want to come back to something you mentioned when we were talking about the transition from the net zero plan to being an elected official. You talked about 25 years. Mm-hmm. So politics doesn't usually work at the 25-year scale, I think. Yeah. So how do you or do you keep that long view in mind? Well, I've been a climate activist for 30 years and a politician for less than one year. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that informs my perspective. Mm-hmm. And You know, I I think one of the challenges that may cause that problem that you're referencing is if if people get too bought into the idea that I'm a politician and I want that to continue at all costs, including making some trade-offs in the short term so that I can continue to be in office and, and enjoy, you know, the perks of that. I don't know that I'll be, you know, immune to that, but but at least going into it, having that inversion where I've been an activist for 30 years and I'm just starting out as a politician, at least I have some momentum where I'll continue to be an activist for a while. And then, you know, if, if I feel in myself that I'm no longer being effective or being less effective than I'd like to be, then I always retain the option to say, well, I used to be something else, you know. I'm also an entrepreneur and a businessman and a software engineer. So, so I have a lot of other identities that I can fall back on if I feel that, you know, being a politician isn't the right answer anymore. But I do recognize that that's not necessarily true for everybody, and so, you know, that's that's okay too. We don't need everybody to be the same. I hear uh, a lot of people talking about maybe this is the time to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Any tips from your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a good time to be involved in politics. It's always a good time to be involved. But when you see your government, you know, failing, which is what's happening, then... At the national level. Right. Yeah. Then that's the time to say, okay, maybe I need to do more to counteract that. You know, Obama had this this wonderful statement where he said, you know, the most important 
job title is not mayor or president, it's citizen, you know, and, and that's what a citizen does. It's, it's government by the people. So we shouldn't think of government as some remote thing that, you know, is governing our lives. We should think of it as us, you know. You don't have and to get elected to be involved. You, yeah. Absolutely yeah. not. But at the same time, being on the inside, I do feel that it's my responsibility to, to draw people in. You know, just last night we had our first activist social and we had a dozen people come in and spend a couple of hours where, you know, we're socializing. I give them some updates, answer some questions, and then we make some plans for things we want to work on together. And just helping people feel more included and part of the conversation, you know, so that there's in this this distance or or this feeling that somehow you have to be an expert or have to know everything before you can be useful. So make it real for us. What would 2040 look like if, let's say you're not a counselor for 22 years, <laughs> but you have been, you know, you've been a counselor for long enough and you feel like those policies have been institutionalized. Yeah. What do you think Cambridge would look like in 2040? So I think we would be a net zero city, so we would be deriving all of our energy from renewable sources. Fantastic. We would be more integrated with natural processes. You know, I think a lot about we're we're about to start up a citywide food waste pickup for composting, but that compost, you know, that food waste still goes somewhere else to be mm-hmm. composted. Well, where is it going, <laughs> you know? And so where is it going to go? Well, it goes to a farm uh-huh. further west of here. And and then, you know, does that end compost product come back to us, right? So So really tightening that loop, you know, can we do the composting in Cambridge? Can we use that compost in Cambridge to grow more food? So, you know, really integrating ourselves more with the natural cycle, ripping up pavement. We would, you know, right now we're at like 63% of our surface area is paved or something like that. So unpaving paradise. Unpaving it. (laughs) Absolutely. Having much more natural areas for flood protection, for heat wave protection, having more trees and having new different protections in place so that we are actually growing our canopy. Right now, our canopy is shrinking. So the eco-restoration kinds of things, I think, people have been talking about. Mm -hmm. So a wild question. What percentage of people in Cambridge you think can be fed by food grown in Cambridge or raised? That's uh, that's really hard to to know, but, but I would say it's a pretty small number but the benefits of doing it are tremendous. So, so through one of my nonprofits, Green Cambridge, we started a small community farm last year in East Cambridge, and you know we're not able to grow tremendous amounts of food in in what's essentially someone's backyard, but we were able to create a tremendous community space that has already brought together dozens of people who otherwise wouldn't be involved with our organization and wouldn't have this particular way of living their values because they wouldn't have that opportunity in the city. So I think it it is tremendously beneficial to bring those processes back into the urban form so that 
people are more connected to where their food really comes from, where their waste really goes, what the energy cycle really looks like, so that they're able to use that knowledge to inform their habits. It's not just an abstract concept, but they're actually living it day to day in their neighborhood. Right. Uh I mean, of course, there's a politics to why we don't do that, right? Because I think my understanding is that preventing people from growing their own food makes it easier for strikes to fail, for example, right? Because you don't you can't live off your own uh, your own backyard yeah Yeah. i i guess that that theoretically makes sense to me i i'm not sure that i would ascribe that level of sophistication to our politics and where we are right now at this (laughs) moment but but you know in the 19th century when this was much more alive i can imagine that politicians or other business people might have had a little bit more savvy in that. Yeah, and and I think it's it's been sort of baked into our habits again, yes. right? So that we we've been able to so effectively outsource those functions to other parts of our economy, to other companies and other institutions, that we have essentially don't even need a motivation anymore. It's just that is just a habit, you know. It's like you go to the grocery store to get your food. Who does farming? Let's make net zero a habit. <laughs> Let's make net zero a habit. <laughs> okay. All right. Habits of government with Quentin Zonovan. <laughs> Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the final episode of season three coming soon to you in January or whenever you're listening. The Climate Conversations podcast is engineered and edited by Dave Lashansky. Project and media support is by my MIT Open Learning colleagues, Laura Howells and Michaela Joyce. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Join the community on climate.mit.edu and be in touch at Twitter, climatex underscore MIT, and Facebook, group name MIT Climate. For my co-hosts, Rajesh Kasturi-Rangan and Dave Damlor, I'm Kurt Newton. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>